I think there are, are a lot of people who would suggest that this is due to recent developments. I, I would suggest that we've been barreling to this point for a much longer period of time. It wasn't just a particular rally. People will attribute the, the Supreme Court decision in Alston versus the NCA, and then within a month we have a constitutional review as the trigger and then the event. But there's a, a lot of lead up. There's a lot of history here. The NIL question is a legal question. It's not simply a transformation committee question. It is a question that is attached to state laws. It's a congressional conversation. It's a judicial conversation. How do we adapt in the current environment, knowing what's happening with name, image, and likeness? Where do we have the space to regulate? Talk more about championships. The amplification opportunity through NCAA championships. Who's playing in the championships? Championships are kind of a North Star for those external to college athletics. Opportunities for national competition leading into those championships, which are the North Star for the NCAA. Welcome back to the Big Amateurs and Monologues. My name is Richard Ford and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories, Apple, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, all those places. And I also have a blog that I started writing in about three years ago. I haven't done much in it recently, really since the Austin oral argument in March, but there's some good stuff there, I think. You can check that out at cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. All right. Today is Saturday, January 22nd, 2022. And we had a vote come in late in the day on January 20th on this new constitution. And it passed by a supermajority, over 80% according to the NCAA. So it looks like everything went according to to plan, at least from the Power Five standpoint. It looks like this Constitution has given everybody what they need to feel happy enough with a somewhat different status quo. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about what the differences really amount to now going forward. And again, we have the work of this Transformation Committee. We're going to talk about that too. And I guess I should say up front here that the version of the Constitution that was ratified looks identical to to me to the one that was presented on December 14th. So I didn't see any changes to that document. And, and in prior episodes, I talked about the changes between the three drafts. And you can go back and, and check out those episodes. Those episodes are episodes 71 through 79. So I, I did a series on this constitutional committee and its work product, this draft. The first one came out on November 8th. So I think I'm going to go ahead and just read out to you these episodes because I think there's some good stuff here and I really took the time to break down these drafts and to compare the new constitution to the old constitution and and went to a level of detail that I don't think you're going to find anywhere else and I'll just read these off. So episode 71 was committees, omertas, and big time football power plays and I give an overview really of this whole constitution committee initiative largely through the eyes of Bob Gates who is the chair of that committee and then episode 72 the NCAA Constitution Committee Preserving the NCAA Administrative State. And I talk about some of the non-negotiable items that came into this debate, and they really relate to the March Madness money. The NCAA needed to be bought off, and the best way for the powerful football interest to do that was to guarantee that they wouldn't have their gravy train interrupted, their March Madness gravy train interrupted. And from that money, Divisions 2 and 3 were purchased with guaranteed revenue allocations. They, they were actually in the old Constitution under the old organization provision, but they were really emphasized in this new constitution. And in that regard, a little known but very important dynamic that runs through this entire constitutional makeover is that the March Madness money doesn't mean that much to the big-time powerful football interests. And I'm going to talk about that in more detail when I transition into how the Power Five football interests really think about themselves, how they view themselves relative to the rest of the college sports marketplace and the rest of the regulatory model. And I'm going to go through some financial information in a couple of databases that look at where big time college sports gets its money from on an institution by institution basis, and then how that money is spent. And when you look at the revenue streams and you see the dominance of the football product, you really begin to see how unimportant 
the basketball money is to the big-time powerful football interests, which is why they don't have any problem viewing it as nothing more than a bargaining chip to get their way under the NCAA umbrella by giving the NCAA what it wants and making sure that you buy off enough downstream beneficiaries with the March Madness money, (laughs) with somebody else's money to keep them happy and compliant. And that's exactly what happened here. So that was episode 72. Let's talk about episode 73, which is titled The NCAA Constitution Committee Draft, a cut and paste power five power grab. And in that, I go through and uh, compare the old NCAA Constitution to this first uh, new Constitution draft that came out on November 8. I go provision by provision and establish that it is by and large more of a cut and paste exercise than anything else. Then in episode 74, titled The NCAA Draft Constitution's Reorganization Principles, colon, Making Power Five Dominance and NCAA National Office Impotence Official. I talk more about this was really nothing more than a power play. So the Power Five have absolute control of the regulatory model under the NCAA umbrella without having to give up much of anything. And the NCAA on the backside of this through the devolution of powers down from the national level to the divisional level is really a, a shell corporation. It has very little purpose. And I'm going to talk about some comments from Greg Sankey and Julie Cromer, who are the co-chairs of this Division One Board of Directors Transformation Committee. They sat for this social series podcast on January 21st, the day after the votes. And the the way that they try to justify the NCAA's purpose and existence is really kind of comical. But I think that's an important episode. And then episode 75, the NCAA draft constitution, crime, punishment, and the death of presidential leadership in college sports. And I really look at the governing board in the transition from the old constitution to the new constitution and talk in some detail about how this uh, critical component of the governance model that's been in place really since the early 1990s through the work of the Knight Commission and then cemented in in 1996 when the NCAA went from a one school, one vote legislative process to a federated system top heavy with university presidents and chancellors and how that fundamental component of the regulatory model is a thing of the past because under this new constitution, and the new Board of Governors, university presidents and chancellors have a very limited role. And that is an important transition that's gotten no coverage, zero coverage at all. Episode 76, five reasons why the Power Five don't leave the NCAA to form their own association. I explain why the Power Five, despite having threatened to leave the NCAA altogether time and time again to get their way under the NCAA umbrella and to bully the NCAA around, why they haven't left. They get substantial benefits from being under the NCAA umbrella, and I I break those down. They're really important, I think, to understand the thinking of the big-time powerful football interests. Then episode 77, NCAA Power 5 Propaganda and a Sham Marriage. In that episode, I use another episode from the Social Series podcast where they had a representative, an institutional representative from each of the three divisions to talk about just how wonderful this draft constitution is. And I described the basic terms of the relationship between the Power Five football interests and the rest of the NCAA interests as, as really a sham marriage that basically is negotiated short of divorce, and it gives the Power Five football interests complete autonomy within the NCAA umbrella, while the NCAA national office and divisions two and three receive enough March Madness money to continue living the lifestyles to which they have become accustomed. And then in episode 78, I talk about this division one transformation committee and uh, the power five and how they claim the iron throne of college sports regulation. This transformation committee is really the keystone for the power five football interest and the pathway to the complete takeover of the regulatory model. That ties into what Jim Phillips was saying about the CFP and putting the expansion talks on hold because there's a lot to talk about. He ran that through a football lens. He explicitly linked the work of this 
Transformation Committee and the football product in big-time college sports with the CFP expansion. And, and that was an interesting way to talk about it. But I think unintentionally, Phillips was saying what it was painfully obvious through this Transformation Committee's power play. And the Transformation Committee is a power five show, and it is a power five football show. And then in episode 79, which is titled The Revised NCAA Constitution Draft, Say Goodbye to Athlete Well-Being. I, I talk about the empty promises in the draft constitution relating to athlete well-being, in particular athlete safety and health and physical and mental health. Some of the language that was taken out after the first draft that went directly to athlete well-being and the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries didn't like it because it came too close to looking like language that an athlete could actually use to enforce those rights, to require the NCAA to stand by that promise. And the NCAA is not going to do that. There's nothing in this constitution or the old constitution that would give rise to any enforceable obligations on the part of the institutional stakeholders. And again, with the new Constitution Transformation Committee, they're going to have to decide what bylaws are going to be in place, what the actual legislation is going to be. And that's the only vehicle through which there can be any enforcement action. I've talked quite a bit about that. But this whole athlete well-being, physical and mental health, it was just wallpaper for public relations purposes. And I guess I should also say at this point that when I started talking about this Constitution Committee, it was right when Gates announced its existence on July 30th of 2021. And then the committee itself, uh, the roster for the committee was announced, I think, on August 10th and 11th. I was paying close attention to what Gates was saying and what the actual charge of this Constitution Committee was. And the language that Gates was speaking really had nothing to do with athlete well-being. He was speaking in terms of the NCAA finding a way to remain relevant. And I'm going to talk about that particular justification for this constitutional makeover in a little bit here in this episode. But he also talked about aligning authorities and responsibilities. And I did a couple of episodes directed to the way that Gates framed that issue. And in episode 50, and I don't have the date here, it looks like that was in early August, titled The Unbearable Lightness of NCAA responsibilities. I look at the responsibility side, and then I did a follow-up episode, episode 51, titled The NCAA's Limited Authorities Myth. And, you know, there were two ways to look at that at the time that Gates framed those issues early on. One was that the NCAA had these substantial responsibilities, particularly when it came to enforcing this overarching cap on the cost of labor, and then also managing all these crazy rules that go to recruiting in the talent acquisition market, and that the authorities they had didn't line up with that. And that's consistent with what the NCAA has been saying for decades behind the scenes to congressional decision makers and to policymakers, that they need law enforcement-like capabilities in order to do their righteous work to preserve the sacred principle of amateurism. The flip side of that is that the NCAA simply needs to reduce its responsibilities to align them with this professed lack of authority. And I wasn't sure which way that was going to go, but I I talked at length about these responsibilities and the implication that the NCAA is just doing so much and it just can't continue to bear those burdens with the tools that it has in its toolkit. And that's just not a reality-based framing of the relationship between the NCAA's responsibilities and authorities because the NCAA has spent decades and hundreds of millions of dollars building a firewall around the national office to immunize it from any meaningful responsibilities. And in this episode, on episode uh, 50, I go through all of the litigation campaigns and the congressional campaigns over the years where the NCAA has specifically attempted to avoid responsibility for the principles contained in its constitution, like gender equity, like athlete safety and well-being, like academic standards. And I walk through the litigation campaigns and the congressional campaigns on issues ranging from gender equity, as was the case in the Smith decision in 1999, where the U.S. Supreme Court said the NCAA couldn't be responsible for Title IX violations because it doesn't move federal money. 
And the NCAA got a similar result on race-related issues at or about the same time in the Curitan case out of the Third Circuit, I believe. And the NCAA also got a free pass in the McCant suit, which was resolved in 2015. And in that case, a couple of former UNC athletes sued the NCAA and UNC claiming breaches of quasi-contract and fiduciary responsibilities because they were steered to these fraudulent courses. And the athletes relied on the very statements and quote-unquote commitments contained in the NCAA Constitution. And they're in both the old Constitution and the new Constitution. In that sense, this new Constitution is no different from the old Constitution. They have all these fluffy principles that amount to absolutely nothing because when the NCAA is called upon to stand behind them, they do exactly what they did in the McCants case and they say to the athletes, we owe you nothing. We have no relationship with you, no direct relationship with you. You're not members of the NCAA. And that's true. That argument has been very effective because in McCants, the NCAA filed a motion to dismiss and the court granted it. So this notion that the NCAA has all of these responsibilities, these weighty responsibilities for all these important principles that their entire business model is based upon is an absolute fraud. And the NCAA has fought to the death through their silk stocking lawyers and their silk stocking lobbyists to make sure that they have an absolute fire firewall around the national office and around these constitutional principles so that they can't be held responsible for them. And now with this shift in power from the NCAA to the Power Five, the Power Five gets the benefit of those protections because this is the NCAA constitution, not the Division I constitution, not the Power Five constitution, not the SEC constitution, not the Greg Sankey constitution. This is the NCAA constitution. And those principles are national principles of the entire association. So the Power Five now, and this is one of the reasons I think that the Power Five stays under the NCAA umbrella. There's a history of legal protections and immunities that the NCAA has built up over the years through this irrational deference to their conceptualization of amateurism and other normative principles that allows them to operate scot-free in the regulatory environment. And it wasn't until we had the state legislatures stepping in and federal courts really putting pressure on the NCAA, that they realized that that firewall was at risk. And that's why they went to Congress to try to get extraordinary national, federal protections and immunities that would have eliminated all of these external regulatory threats. And I'll also say this, I'm not the only person who's commenting on the state of college sports who views this transformation committee's work with some skepticism or this new constitution with some skepticism. That has come through even in-system stakeholder beneficiaries who were in the minority here in terms of the actual vote, who were very vocal, apparently, at the convention. We don't know exactly what they said, but in some of the post-vote articles that I read, there were concerns that Divisions 2 and 3 weren't guaranteed enough money. I'm not a huge fan of that argument. And then apparently there was at least a critical mass of members who saw this for what it was, and that is just nothing more than a power five power grab. And they just didn't think it was going to solve any of the issues that this whole constitutional makeover was built around. And just it's a, it's more the same. And now instead of the NCAA serving up the misdirection and the propaganda, it's running through the Power Five. And I think with this new leadership, with the Transformation Committee, they don't have anywhere to hide. I'm going to talk about that, too, in connection with this, this social series podcast episode that Sankey and Cromer sat for yesterday. But uh, before I get to the actual interview, there's one thing I just want to discuss and emphasize, because it's so important in the context of how the NCAA is now trying to shift the narrative. And, and this social series podcast, again, is just a naked piece of propaganda. And it's useful to the extent that you get a sense of how the talking points are evolving. And on the backside of this social series interview, you have a list of talking points that I think is going to guide the public face of the work of this transformation committee. And in evaluating these kinds of pieces, it's not enough just to look at what 
was included and how misleading that is, uh, a lot of the messaging, a lot of the manipulation can be done through what is excluded, what is omitted. And in this interview, there is zero discussion about the CFP, zero discussion about Power 5 football, zero discussion about SEC football, zero discussion about Jim Phillips's comments just a few days before when the ACC parted strategic paths with the rest of the Power 5 on the CFP expansion. No discussion of that. To listen to this interview, you would have no idea that the entire NCAA business model has been built around Power 5 football, that the Power 5 football interests have been getting their way under the NCAA umbrella going back to the 1970s, and that this new constitutional committee makeover would not have occurred but for the insistence and the aggressive behind-the-scenes arm-twisting of the Power 5 football interests. They don't exist in this interview. And that is important to point out. And so I, I just want to reemphasize how important it is that Phillips link these decisions and these discussions and the future of Division One through this transformation committee to big-time football, to the CFP e- expansion. In an article in ESPN, this was on January 17th, Phillips said, we don't have a CFP problem. We have a college football, college athletics slash NCAA problem. And there I think he's referring to the work of the Transformation Committee. And getting that straight is very important in Phillips' view. And that should be done before we start talking about any of these specific issues that have been on the table in the college sports marketplace and the regulatory model. At least that's how I interpreted his comments. And Greg Sankey has his foot on the gas. That's where things sit right now. Phillips is on these committees. He's on the the Constitution Committee, the Transformation Committee. Who the hell knows what's going on behind the scenes here? But Phillips, I think, unintentionally made clear that this is all about big-time football, as it always has been. So now I want to turn to this interview that Greg Sankey and Julie Cromer gave. And again, Sankey is the head of the SEC. He's the commissioner of the SEC, the most powerful football conference in college football right now. The, the Big Ten and the SEC are the big dogs, and they, I think there's substantial distance between them and the other three Power Five conferences. And then Julie Cromer is the athletics director at Ohio University, which is a group of five school. They're not running with the big dogs. It's not a power five school. It's in that tier below where you have these schools who have been nipping at the heels of the power five. And I've talked quite a bit about that. I'm going to talk about it in more detail when I talk about the antitrust issues that are on the table that nobody's talking about going forward. And that's going to be important in the work of this transformation committee. It's not clear if Phillips had that on his mind, but Cromer is the the face of that uh, group of five. And she she used to work at the University of Arkansas, so she was in the SEC. I'm guessing she knew a Sankey then. And importantly, she worked for the NCAA for almost a decade, I think. And she was in compliance. So she's from the belly of the beast. She's an NCAA bureaucrat. Now she is an athletics director at Ohio University. And based on what I heard in this interview, she is just singing Greg Sankey's song. But I'm going to try to hit the the high points here. There was some incomprehensible administrator speak that runs through this entire transcript. But I'm trying to focus on substantively how they are managing the message. And one of the things that's going to be interesting going forward is that Mark Emmert's not going to be the chief propagandist here. This isn't an NCAA issue going forward. This is a Division I issue going forward. And Greg Sankey is really in the driver's seat. So it's going to be real interesting to see how Sankey handles that role. Again, as I mentioned earlier, and I've, I've talked about this before, Sankey has manicured his public image as the no BS guy. He's the guy working behind the scenes. He's the policy wonk. He understands everything down to the last detail. And I think this interview is just a little peek into how challenging that's going to be for Sankey because he's he's in a role now here that I don't think he's used to. And he's going to be the public face of what 
the most important division in college sports looks like going forward. And he's going to have to make himself available, I think, to explain what the committee's doing. And it'll be interesting to see. You hear him talking about transparency. You hear all these people talking about transparency. It'll be interesting to see how much transparency we actually get from the work product of this committee. And he's saying they're going to be meeting every week. And we'll, we'll talk more about that as we identify and discuss some of the issues that are going to be right front and center as the committee begins its work here. So I, I want to go to this uh, podcast episode. And right on, out of the blocks here, Sankey is uh, taking subtle digs at the members who took to the microphones in the convention center to speak against the new constitution. And he he made clear that he didn't think a whole lot of the opinions that they expressed, but we don't really know exactly what those opinions are. But then Katz asks the broad questions and he's, he asks Cromer, how did we get to this point where this was needed, this constitutional makeover? And Cromer then says something and Sankey supports it that, oh, this was going to happen anyway. So she says, I think there are a lot of people who would suggest that this, and this is the constitutional makeover, is due to recent developments. I would suggest that we've been barreling to this point for a much longer period of time. The diversity in our division, the increased number of institutions, and also the diversity of resources in our institution among our divisions. And institutions, it's been running for decades. And so it's a really important point in time, but it's not something that we couldn't see coming. And then Sankey jumps in and he says, well, you know, to Julie's point, it just wasn't a particular event. I think people will attribute the Supreme Court decision in Alston versus the NCAA. And then within a month, we have a constitutional review as the trigger and then the event. But there's a lot of lead up. There's a lot of history here. And uh, in my opening montage, I include quotes from Cromer and Sankey on that point. And it's really interesting. And I think this really, again, speaks to the fine line that Sankey's going to have to walk because Sankey tries to support the narrative that was, I think, intended by the question. And then Cromer reinforces that without much qualification. Sankey comes in and sort of supports the narrative, but then he pivots to talking about, yeah, so there have been legal discussions, there have been committee discussions. And in reality, in the real world we're in right now, there are these external regulatory threats, but it's a very subtle way that he works it in. But the problem is that he sort of buys into the initial premise, and that's tricky territory. And I think when you listen to some other things that Sankey said, like the next part of that uh, montage is a discussion from Sankey about uh, name, image, and likeness and transfer rules and the fact that these are really legal and political issues. They're going to run through state legislatures and, and Congress and the courts. And he knows that's the reality that the NCAA and the Power Five face right now. But trying to fit that reality into these narratives that are almost impossible to defend is a real challenge. And that's a public messaging challenge. It's a spin challenge. It's a a narrative making and shaping challenge. But I think it's really important to talk about how we actually got to this point. And I'm going to explain that here in just a minute, because I believe the clear implication of the narrative that was put out in this podcast episode is that this constitutional makeover, this fundamental restructure at the regulatory model was going to happen anyway. And these other things, these external events driven by external regulators in large part, the state laws on name, image, and likeness, the Austin decision, the failure to get preemption in Congress, the NCAA's debacle on voluntary rules changes in name, image, and likeness, and the transfer rules, that none of these things were really that important because we were going to do this constitutional makeover anyway. And that portrayal is directly at odds with reality and also with the very charge of the Constitution Committee and the comments of people ranging from Bob Gates to divisional leaders to people who appeared on this social series podcast just a few days 
before this episode. You know, it was an episode on January 14th where you had a representative from each of the three divisions and two of the three didn't have any trouble acknowledging that we're here to having this discussion because of pressure from external regulatory threats and the name, image, and likeness issue and the transfer issue. And you know, they go back and forth trying to make it seem like, oh, well, we really needed to do this anyway. And we have a constitution that's 25 years old. Oh, that's a terrible thing. And that misdirection just flies in the face of the very purpose of the NCAA Power 5 campaign in Congress and in federal courts. And this goes back to 2019, in Congress at least. And their quest to have the entire regulatory and business model federalized at the national level to preserve the NCAA's national authority. That's it. After that attempt failed, that attempt to nationalize the collegiate sports regulatory model, yet have it still controlled by the NCAA and the Power Five, you just can't come back and say with a straight face that you intended to make these changes all along. And again, they're implying that there is this invisible, unstated consensus out there in the in-system stakeholder beneficiary groups that this kind of restructuring of the governance model and rewriting of the Constitution was essential to the NCAA moving forward and changing with the times. And where the hell was any of that discussion over the last two and a half years, going back really to uh, 2019, but starting for sure in February of 2020, when on February 11th, we had the first Senate hearing and the NCAA went to Congress and said, we need your help. That was the purpose of the hearing. Yet not in that hearing or any of the six hearings that occurred in the United States Congress after that, did you hear a single NCAA representative or Power 5 representative or an in-system stakeholder beneficiary representative saying that the NCAA governance structure had to change and it had to change immediately. Where was Bob Bowlesby, the commissioner of the Big 12, or Mark Emmert, president of the NCAA, or Greg Sankey, the commissioner of the SEC, or Michael Drake, the chair of the NCAA Board of Governors, all of whom testify in these hearings. Where were they saying, wait a minute, we have this backwards. We have this upside down and inside out. We shouldn't be talking about having the federal government step in to make the NCAA and only the NCAA the single national regulator in college sports. We need to take the NCAA's power and disassemble it, send it downstream, and neuter the NCAA as a national regulator. Where was that discussion? And I think another thing that's driving this manufactured sense of urgency is that the longer that this new name, image, and likeness market is in place, and it's less regulated than the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries would like, and this transfer market, and these movements towards athletes perhaps having the benefits of being a statutory employee under federal law, the longer those things are in place or those discussions are moving forward, the harder it's going to be for the Power Five to go back to Congress and say that we need to turn the clock back to 2019 and lock in that status quo. That's the sense of urgency, but that's a, a false sense of urgency. And this should be the time where the Power Five and all of the stakeholders in big time college sports at the regulatory level press pause and really take a good, hard, holistic look at what the college sports uh, regulatory model and marketplace looks like in 2022. And a lot of people forget that back in 2019, there was some legislation that was proposed in the House. We had the Mark Walker bill that was a name, image, and likeness bill. But there was another bill that was put on the table by Donna Shalala, who was a representative from Florida. And she was the former university president at Miami when they were run through the grist mill in an NCAA infractions and enforcement case. And I don't think she thinks highly of the NCAA's enforcement process. But she put a bill on the table that basically was going to be a holistic review of big-time college sports, and she was going to form a commission, and that commission was going to have subpoena power so that we could actually force the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries to explain how the sausage is really made. And that bill got very little support. 
actually the way it was structured, and I wrote about this in, in my blog, it was really structured in a way that was similar in theory to the way that the Carnegie Foundation thought about its review of the relationship between big-time football and, and higher education back in the 1920s. And I think that type of approach makes sense now because we have so much going on. And I believe, I could be wrong, I believe that's what Phillips and the ACC presidents and chancellors were thinking about when they talked about this 365-day holistic review. That would be a great thing to do. But if that's going to happen, it needs to happen in a way where the power players who have been uh, twisting Congress's arm behind the scene for two and a half years have to cough up the evidence. They have to cough up the documents. They have to cough up the financials. They have to cough up all of their communications with their lobbyists. Let's put that on the table. I don't think that Jim Phillips or the ACC were envisioning that we, we form a commission that would have subpoena power. You know, they're not very interested in sharing their communications with their lobbyists. I want to see what Jim Phillips has said to his lobbyists and what they've said back. That should be on the table. It absolutely should be on the table. But some of these comments that have come out uh, since this Constitution Committee was formed in August of uh, 2021, the rallying cry and talking point is, we need to control control our destiny. How many times have we heard that? The time is now. The time is now. Now is the time for transformational change. Where the hell was that urgency over the last two and a half years? I could put together a pretty funny montage of how many times an NCAA bureaucrat or one of the insistent stakeholder beneficiary representatives has said, the time is now. Now is the time. And we have to act and transformative change. You have to have a sense of humor. Then you also have to remember that when the NCAA was initially formulating how it was going to oppose nil while making it look for public appearances as if it supported nil, you had the NCAA governing bodies. Uh, Michael Drake, the chair of the NCAA Board of Governors at the time, and then Mark Emmert, and then all the representatives who were speaking from the working group, they were saying, we need to modernize. We need to modernize our rules. This is about bringing college sports into the 21st century. And they're saying that garbage while at the same time, in Congress and in federal courts, they're trying to turn the clock back to 1950. <laughs> so it may be more accurate to say that they were trying to turn the clock back to the second half of the 19th century. Because while they're talking about modernization for public consumption in Congress, behind the scenes with their lobbyists, and in the Austin case, they are explicitly arguing for those bodies to accept the NCAA's conceptualization of amateurism and to protect it through federal law. And that concept is nothing more than a social convention of the British aristocracy from the 19th century. And you don't hear any in-system stakeholders breathing the word amateur or amateurism. That is That vocabulary has been completely retooled, and that is a forbidden word because it has a bad name on the street, particularly after the United States Supreme Court called it into question in a unanimous decision. And you have to ask yourself why Greg Sankey and Julie Cromer simply can't say that out loud. That's what I mean when I say Sankey's in a really tough spot here. And as I've said many, many times, and I'm going to keep saying it till I'm blue in the face, if the NCAA and Power Five had gotten any of the things they were asking for, if they had gotten antitrust immunity or some form of it from the United States Supreme Court in Austin, or if they had gotten preemption from Congress, we're not having this discussion. This Constitution Committee doesn't exist. There's no sense of urgency. And the time would not be now. The time would be never. Because the sole goal of those campaigns was to protect the National Regulatory Authority of the NCAA and the Power Five. And it's at these points in time when the NCAA and now the Power Five start to throw obvious, undisputable history down the memory hole that you say, no, no, you're not going to get away with that. You can't get away with that. And, and that's not, it's not going to serve any useful purpose for you going forward. Because the people who are looking at you, the people who are skeptical of you, I don't think see much of a difference in your motivations versus the NCAA's motivations. So why not just say what's obvious, acknowledge the obvious and work from that? That would be a good step if you're Greg Sankey or Julie Cromer or this transformation committee. Trying to pretend that the last year didn't occur is not a winning strategy. But 
the Constitution Committee has a charter and a charge. And I'm not sure when this came out. This was probably in August. Actually, no, I think this is dated on July 30th. This is when Bob Gates made the announcement of the existence and formation of the Constitution Committee. I just want to read the preamble. This is the justification for this Constitution Committee. This is the explanation for why this committee is necessary. And it's titled Preamble. The time is now to transform college sports and reimagine the NCAA system of governance. The current NCAA constitution and governance model were built in a time much different than today. The association's actions related to the student-athlete experience and support, or in some cases, inaction has not gone unnoticed. This action will require innovative thinking and bold next steps, but if the association is to remain relevant, it must lean forward and start with a clean sheet of paper and must do it now. And uh, early on, Gates made some other comments about the fact that the NCAA is in a battle for relevance. The obvious question there is why? And the obvious answer is that The NCAA, through its arrogance and its refusal to accept the realities of the business model in the 21st century, has been dragged kicking and screaming to this point by external regulators like federal courts, like Congress, or in this case through inaction because the NCAA didn't get what it wanted from Congress, and through state legislatures who stepped in on name, image, and likeness, something the NCAA has been talking about for a long time but has refused to do a damn thing about. And these state legislatures came in and said, particularly California, I think some of the later state nil laws were really NCAA friendly and were built around their guardrails, but California got this ball rolling in 2019. And, and they said, we're tired of waiting. Your stock and trade is to promise and then delay. Promise and then delay and never deliver. And we've been waiting patiently. Now we're stepping in. And even with that law, as initially crafted, the very first provision said that this law wasn't going to go into effect until 2023 in a good faith effort to wait on the NCAA's claims that it was actually going to do something through voluntary rulemaking. And they didn't. They came back and said, up yours to the state of California, up yours to Gavin Newsom. We're going to file a federal lawsuit under the Dormant Commerce Clause and bring your state law to its knees. That's how the NCAA responded. And they, they wonder now why they're in the position that they're in. But what does this preamble really mean? What brought the NCAA to the brink of irrelevance. And in 2019, was anybody questioning whether the NCAA was irrelevant in in the college sports regulatory market? No, they were riding high and happy and they thought they were going to just march through Congress and basically eliminate the athletes' rights movement. It was that kind of arrogance that really was their fatal flaw. And the uh, unanimous Supreme Court essentially said that, in, in my judgment. And the only answer is that the NCAA was forced to this point because of the action of the very external regulators that they sought to eliminate through their Iron Throne campaign in the Senate beginning in 2019. And they lost. That's why they are in a position where they're fighting for their relevance. But I think the most important question now, on the backside of this constitutional makeover, looking just at this new constitution, comparing it to the old one, and that is, how is the NCAA more relevant after this vote on the new constitution. Because remember, the preamble here is not talking about the Power Five. It's talking about the NCAA. This is a battle for relevance that goes directly to the NCAA as a national governing body. So my question is, how is the NCAA more relevant after this vote? The fact of the matter is it's not. It's less relevant in this new constitution. The NCAA has two roles only, actually three three roles. One, it runs national championships. And in this interview, that's all you hear from Sankey and Cromer. Oh yeah, the championships are the uh, North Star of the NCAA. He said that a few times. And in that opening montage, I had clips of references to national championships. That was a talking point. There's no question about that. 
And the reason for that is that the NCAA's role in running national championships has been brought out of the bowels of the old NCAA Division I manual and brought forward in the new constitution as a constitutional mandate. And it is nothing more than a justification for the NCAA's very existence. And then the other thing that the NCAA does is run conventions. They hold a couple of conventions and put on another party. Honestly, in the championships that it sponsors, those are really self-executing. It's kind of in a set-it-and-forget-it mode with its national championships, and the same will be true now with its conventions when they get back on track here post-COVID. But the most important thing that the NCAA national office will continue to do is to bring in money from the March Madness contract, which is also a set-it-and-forget-it venture because that contract won't expire until 2032. And then selling marketing and licensing rights to third parties to bring in more revenue. That's it. And remains to be seen what the the Power Five are going to do with enforcement and infractions. That's irrelevant for Divisions 2 and 3, really. They don't have any high-stakes cases. It's all Mickey Mouse stuff. But in Division 1, you have cases that are consequential, and they can uh, interrupt the revenue streams and in the short term hurt your recruiting. The Power Five don't want that to happen. They want control of that. They got it, which means the NCAA is no longer really in the business of enforcing any meaningful rules and policies at the national level. Because the only rules and policies that matter are the ones that relate to the money products. So the very preamble to this Constitution Committee and its charge makes a mockery of these suggestions that, oh, this was going to happen anyway. It had to happen. And we have this Constitution that's been in place since 1996. And oh my gosh, we need to do it. We need to do it now. We always needed to do it now. But Bob Gates, when he sat for this social series, podcast interview, he was trying to explain what his thinking was coming into this Constitution Committee. And he seemed pretty forthright in in this uh, interview. But remember, this is in September. This is before the Transformation Committee even exists. The Division I Board of Directors Transformation Committee even exists. And before there appears to be some conflict about infractions and enforcement. And then we had this bill that was introduced in the House on November 2nd, the NCAA Accountability Act, which really targeted its corrupt infractions and enforcement process. But in terms of the overall mosaic of interest in the under the NCAA umbrella and, and how he was approaching the changes that he thought needed to be made, he said, look, first, we do no harm. And he says, Division Two and Division Three actually are pretty comfortable where they are. No question about that. All this discussion about this transformational change has virtually nothing to do with Divisions Two and Divisions Three. And then he talks about the apprehension that there is surrounding this proposed constitutional makeover because the divisions want their money. They want their March Madness welfare checks. So he said they have to balance bringing proposed changes to the Constitution that are significant with the ability to persuade the membership, which means you got to buy off divisions two and three to get a two-thirds majority vote under the NCAA Constitution. And later in the episode, he comes out and basically says that in terms of the relationship between these guaranteed allocations and the votes that are necessary to get this new Constitution passed. But as he's framing the general themes for this Constitution Committee, he says the association needs to go this way. The fact is there's a lot of unhappiness with the association. The association faces a lot of challenges from the courts, from the Congress, from the states, from the various schools, the diversity of the schools. He says, I think there's a pretty broad consensus that there is a need for significant change. And he ties that change, the necessity for that change directly to the external regulatory threats. And the other thing in this podcast is that they are in this Orwellian doublespeak on the the big tent issue. On the one hand, they make it seem as if these constitutional changes are going to reflect the reality that there are differences under the big NCAA umbrella between Power 5 football and Division 3 fencing. <laughs> well, there's no question about that. 
And the NCAA has evolved so that those interests could be separated. And that's the very purpose of the divisional structure. It's the purpose of the FBS structure and the autonomy structure. All these things that are the direct product of the powerful football interests saying, we are segregating our interests and we are protecting our interests under this NCAA umbrella because we have nothing in common with the rest of the NCAA. But they're making it seem that this change is necessary because those distinctions haven't been drawn. And in that regard, Katz asks this just ridiculous question. He says, Greg, there's been so much talk about that if you have the means, whether it's nil or before that, the way you travel, the way you support your teams, the way you pay your coaches, obviously it's up to each institution. And yet it felt like it took us a while to get to the point that, hey, if you're school X and you can do it, great. And if you're school Y and you can't, then that's okay too. Why do you think it took so long for everyone to sort of grasp that concept. And Sankey says, I'm not sure we've completely grasped that concept at this point. I think trying to legitimize Kat's ridiculous assertion there. And then Sankey goes on to talk about the history of how those interests have actually been isolated. And it just flies in the face of the premise of Katz's question, which we didn't realize that until 2021. My gosh, that the Power Five have a much different set of interests and means than somebody in lower level Division One or in Divisions Two and Three. So he does a little history a little tour through history, and he talks about the transition from the university division to, and the college division into the three divisions. That was in 1973, and then we created subdivisions in football. That was in 1978. And then he walks through the, the era of the 1980s, the Supreme Court decision and Board of Regents, which he says decoupled broadcasting from what it used to be. That's a pretty, pretty thin explanation of what really happened there. And then he said these changes forced adaptation. Then in the 90s, he talks about this switch in the voting method from one school, one vote to this federated system. And then he throws in the autonomy movement and the autonomy classification. But the most recent of those was 2013-2014. And some of the most important structural changes go back 40, 50 years. Yet Katz is trying to make it seem like, oh, wow, we just, we have to do this now. And why didn't we realize this before? Then Katz asks some question about name, image, and likeness, and guardrails, and suggesting that there may be some voluntary rules making still on the table, potentially. And uh, Cromer answers by talking about what would happen procedurally, that the Transformation Committee may talk about that, but everything has to then go back through the Division One Board of Directors and yada, yada, yada. Sankey takes that question, and then he turns it in a completely different direction. And I think this is the most important part of the entire interview. Sankey says, the nil question is a legal question. It's not simply a transformation committee question. It's a question that is attached to state laws, many of which have been adapted, some of which will be changed, and more of which will be adopted. It's a congressional conversation. It's a judicial conversation. And I view the transformation committee's discussion on that not with guardrails as a focus, but how do we adapt to the current environment, knowing what's happening with name, image, and likeness. The transfer issues, just like probably anything else, we're going to have to start to talk about from a regulatory standpoint, and that will require legal input. Where do we have the space to regulate? And then he, he goes on to talk about some other stuff. But that is really important because what Sankey is saying there is ultimately that the most important issues that face the new NCAA go back to the very same issues that faced them in 2019. And that is dealing with these issues that have been imposed by external regulatory threats and how do you deal with those threats. Sankey doesn't say a word about the lobbying efforts. He doesn't say a word about what the Power Five as the new regulator in college sports, the de facto regulator in college sports, how they're going to re-engage with Congress, what they're going to ask for, what bills they're going to support, what bills they're going to oppose. He doesn't want to have that conversation. But he does acknowledge, he concedes that this, all of these issues, all this, these things that they're discussing are really subordinate to having regulatory authority that can't be second-guessed by external regulators. So they're going to be right back to the same position that the NCAA was in 2019. And that's where the rubber's going to meet the road 
in all of these discussions and every meaningful discussion on a substantive issue on any of the regulatory challenges that the the new NCAA faces come back and land in the same place. And that is a bailout from Congress. And they're positioning themselves for that. And uh, I'm going to spend a a bit of time talking about that option and what that's going to look like and how it's going to be different from the NCAA's campaign and how it could be influenced by the midterm elections. And then there's another thing I just want to point out here, and this is towards the end of the episode. And Katz is asking about misinformation, and he wraps it up in terms of who is calling the shots when it comes to the postseason. Oh, here's what he says. I'm curious how you handle the misinformation, and there's a lot out there, of who actually makes decisions that when it comes to postseason, yes, that's the NCAA. When it comes to the SEC, that's your decision. When it comes to Ohio, that's your decision. How do you handle the misdirection of where decisions are made? And both Cromer and Sankey spin that into a, a a broader discussion of misinformation. And this sort of ties back into some of the tactics that the NCAA uses to try to shout down any critics and also to avoid responsibility for identifying who's actually in charge. And so Sankey, for example, says, we have we all have a role to play. Part of a conference office function is you're going to be the recipient of uh, blame from time to time, sometimes deserved, sometimes not. And in elevated circumstances, the NCAA plays that role. I think he's just saying that in the past, the NCAA had been the lightning rod. That doesn't mean every finger that's pointed is accurately pointed. I think you have to start from accepting that. And we are right back to one of the central flaws in the entire business model. And I just want to reflect back to the Commission on College Basketball and Condoleezza Rice's observations on the backside of that work. And she was chair of that commission. And when the report was released in uh, April of 2018, Dr. Rice made some very interesting, and I think pretty candid comments about her experience on the commission and and their work and what they concluded. She described the decision-making structure in college sports writ large. And in the context of the Commission on College Basketball, we're talking about the big time sports. We're talking about the context there was basketball, but the same is true in football. But all of the decision makers that swirl around the big business of big time college sports operate like a circular firing squad. That's how she described it. And I, I did some blog posts on that when I was talking about the commission's work. But that's an important issue here. Who is in control? And I have asked that question time and time again. And the NCAA has said, well, we're just the messenger. The national office has no independent authority. And you're back to some of the same BS that Miles Brand was putting out to Congress in the early 2000s. Oh, we do the will of the membership. And then the big time power five interests. Oh, no. Well, you know, we're just taking our orders from the NCAA. And that is the finger pointing. It's the internal finger pointing, where the Power Five is pointing the finger at the NCAA, the NCAA is pointing the finger at the Power Five. People are pointing fingers at the university presidents and the conference commissioners, but nobody is saying, wait a minute, the buck stops here. And that was supposed to be done through this presidential control and leadership initiative that really goes back in in the modern era to the Knight Commission's work in the early 90s. And on the backside of all of these commissions and all of these movements and the reform efforts, and I, I would include the Constitutional Committee in this. On the backside of all that, we simply have more of the same. And I think there's some built-in benefit to the system where nobody's accountable. Everybody can get what they want out of the system that benefits them, but nobody wants to have accountability. And it's very easy to do the very thing that Greg Sankey was implicitly criticizing, and that is to point the finger. I want to close this episode out by by observing what Sankey didn't talk about. And that is, he didn't talk about football. The, The elephant in the room didn't exist in this interview, in this podcast interview. There was zero mention of the college football playoff, zero mention of the Power Five, zero mention of college football. The word football appears once in this transcript. I created a transcript from the episode. And the word football appears once, and it's only as a historical reference to the formation of Division 1A in 1978. But there's zero discussion about the importance of football 
in this entire power play. That's why I wanted to include that Jim Phillips quote, because he comes out and says it explicitly. Of course, this is a football show. It's a Power 5 football show. And when Greg Sankey is going through all these milestones, and he's talking about this at a structural level, from the divisional structure to the formation of what is now the FBS, to Board of Regents, to the change in the governance process, to the autonomy legislation. Neither he nor Cromer say that every single one of those transformative events in the evolution of college sports was the direct product of the powerful football interests demanding to have their way. Those were all the product of the football show and the football power brokers. Every single one. And you wouldn't know that uh, listening to this podcast episode. And to talk about the history of the NCAA at the regulatory level and not talk about the singular influence of big-time football interest is like talking about the ocean and not mentioning water. And that also avoided any discussion about what's going on with the CFP and any connection, the very connection that Jim Phillips drew between the CFP interests and the uh, CFP expansion and the power structure on the backside of the work of this transformation committee. They are obviously connected. And listening to Greg Sankey and Julie Cromer in this discussion about the work of this transformation committee and what brought us here, you would never come away with the impression that the big-time powerful football interests had any connection to any of these changes. So again, I'll be paying close attention to what comes out of this committee. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and close this thing out in the next few episodes. I'm going to go back into the archives and talk about how these powerful football interests view themselves in relationship to the rest of the college sports marketplace. So with that, I just want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.